Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Dr. Leora Kempler about sleep and pregnancy in the first postpartum year. Leora is a sleep psychologist who specialises in insomnia and sleep disorders at the Walcott Clinic in Sydney. She completed her PhD at the University of Sydney, and her interests include the treatment of patients with insomnia and women having difficulties in their antenatal and postpartum period. Welcome, Leora. Thank you, Louise. Good to be here. Thank you, all the way from Australia. We appreciate your time today. So in this podcast, we're going to discuss sleep and pregnancy and in the first postpartum year, what changes to expect, how to optimize your sleep, and who to see if you're struggling. So I just wonder, please, if we could start with what are the common sleep changes in pregnancy? Well, probably the most common one that people really aren't accustomed to is nighttime awakenings. Often that's because they are visiting the bathroom more frequently, but also even though we all wake through the night and that's very natural, uh, often we don't notice it. Whereas when you're pregnant and you're uncomfortable or nauseous, you might be more likely to notice those wakes. So waking through the night is one of the most common and disruptive uh, changes that occur during pregnancy. And sometimes you can get some insomnia symptoms as well, just with uh, all the anxiety and apprehension that comes with pregnancy and all the lifestyle changes that will be coming following that. Uh, so they're probably the, the two biggest ones, yeah, difficulty getting to sleep and, and the more frequent nighttime awakening. And do these changes seem to vary throughout the trimesters? Yeah, they really do. I mean, if you think about the symptoms of pregnancy, they change through the trimesters. And so I suppose it, it makes sense that your sleep responds to those changes. So often in the first trimester, nausea and anxiety for the health of the pregnancy might be, or excitement even, might be the things that kind of cause you to start thinking about things at night and cause sort of insomnia symptoms. But also the nausea that can come in the first trimester can make a person very uncomfortable, which can make it difficult to go to sleep. And a lot of people report very strange dreams in their first trimester as well. And the, and the other thing that's um, not really sleep-related but uh, more wake time related is it's normal to be very, very tired in your first trimester. So a lot of people will attribute that to poor sleep when actually it's more likely a result of the progesterone and the changes in hormones. Um, so they sort of will become a bit more conscious and aware or anxious about their sleep when in reality their sleep isn't the cause of that. So daytime sleepiness is, is quite common in the first trimester as well. Then in the second trimester, often the nausea starts to subside, but then the baby eventually starts moving. And so fetal movement can keep a woman awake sometimes. Again, that can be a feeling of excitement or just, a, just you know, trigger thoughts. And as, as women get bigger and bigger, they sort of go to the bathroom more often. So they may be going to the bathroom, you know, one or two times a night by the second trimester. And then in the third trimester, you know, the, the sleep and, and, as I said, symptoms of pregnancy, they really do change quite rapidly as pregnancy progresses. So with the third trimester, we know that nighttime awakenings are even more frequent as the pregnancy progresses. But also with the third trimester comes 
sometimes pain and discomfort, whether that's leg cramps or joint pain or back pain or anything like that, wonderful things that come with pregnancy. Um, again, going to the bathroom more frequently, but also um, sleep disorders that come with pregnancy that weren't being experienced previously. So that can, that can really start any time, to be honest. But as I said, um, as the pregnancy progresses, all these things often just worsen. So is it more common to snore and have disruptions of the breathing cycle like sleep apnea in pregnancy? It is. It's much more common to snore during pregnancy. And it's not just because of the weight gain. It's also changes in sort of mucus um, at, at, when you're pregnant. So... Um, we often see couples where, you know, the husband spent all the time snoring and suddenly the wife is and you get a bit of role reversal and a taste of your own medicine, which is the silver lining. <laughs> but, um, yeah, definitely snoring is more common. The prevalence of OSA, in reality, it's, it's not very well known in pregnancy. We know that sort of uh, the prevalence of OSA in non-pregnant counterparts like reproductive age women is about 5%. So we would say that it's probably higher than that, but it is sort of difficult to, to say because some of the questionnaires indicate that you're looking at a prevalence of like 25%, but of course, without a sleep study, you, you can't really be sure. So somewhere between 5 and 25%, uh, which is a fairly big range, but that's sort of the prevalence of OSA during pregnancy. But the one thing I like to... Um, touch on with that and I guess if, if this is an issue for you it's something that you've discussed with your doctor anyway but it is likely to subside after the pregnancy once you've had the baby and all those symptoms are gone so for treatment you're much better off hiring a CPAP machine or something if that's what's required rather than buying one they're very expensive to buy so that hopefully won't be necessary we also see higher rates of restless leg syndrome in pregnancy so their prevalence of that is about 20 to 30%, and that also becomes more likely in the third trimester. It's partly linked to genetics, like many things, but also iron, magnesium, and ferritin levels. And it's also been um, thought to be linked to thyroid function as well. So I think this is the type of thing people are fairly well on top of at this stage of their pregnancy, and a lot of people are taking iron supplements and things like that anyway. Um, but definitely with restless legs so the symptoms are something like a very strange um, sensation in the lower legs that get worse toward the end of the day and they sort of can only be relieved with movement if that's sort of the symptoms you're, you're experiencing it's definitely worth talking to your GP or obstetrician or midwife about. The other really common one we see is the uh, gastroesophageal reflux during pregnancy and that affects almost half of women. So it's really, really common. Of course, it's sort of different through times of day and based on what you eat and things like that. So usually it's just managed with dietary and lifestyle changes, but it can be quite disruptive to sleep if you've had a large meal and then you go to bed and you're sort of having these feelings of indigestion and heartburn when you're trying to get to sleep. So it can be quite disruptive as well. And, of course, insomnia also is... Uh, largely linked to habits but also thinking and overthinking I should say in bed and again even though that's common pre-pregnancy it's sort of more common with pregnancy and again that kind of makes sense when you think about the lifestyle changes that 
come with pregnancy and, and what's to come even after that. So all of those are the sort of sleep disorders that we see in pregnancy most commonly. So, Leora, you've mentioned lots of reasons for why a pregnant woman shouldn't be sleeping or what things that may be disrupting her sleep, but what can she be doing to maximise her sleep? What's been shown to work? Okay, that's a really good question. And I suppose the simplest answer is it depends what the primary cause of wakefulness is. So, for example, like I said, in the first trimester, often it's nausea. So if nausea is keeping you awake at night, obviously all the things that kind of help your nausea a tiny bit um, are, are good to implement. So having like a low GI meal before bed, a light meal, so that your stomach's full, that can sort of help the nausea be settled. Just, just something small like a banana or yogurt. Um, or even just keeping some dry crackers next to the bed if nausea is quite severe, that can be quite useful. If it's something more like overthinking in bed, then it's sort of one of these things that's very difficult to discipline yourself to do. But um, implementing some thinking time earlier in the evening to give those thoughts time to sort of run wild in a sense, but also just honour what's going on in your life at the moment. So just an earlier time of the day when your mind's a bit more clear, sit and think, okay, you know, do I need to think about names or, you know, what sort of things are changing in my life that I need to think about? All those types of thoughts that fly into your mind at bedtime that uh, are really not helpful for your sleep. And then if you go to bed and your mind's still quite busy, using mindfulness strategies can be really useful just to have thoughts, you can't really turn your mind off. This is the problem. You know, we'd all like to just switch off and fall asleep, but it's not really realistic. So instead of switching off, we sort of encourage people to think about things that are a bit more conducive to sleep. So usually your exciting, emotional or sad things or worrying things that you think about in bed are very, very stimulating um, and really maintain that wakefulness, whereas Something quite boring to think about is definitely much more conducive to sleep. So there's lots of mindfulness strategies one can use um, that can just help quiet the mind. The other ways to maximize sleep is to vary your bedtimes and listen to your body and your needs. Uh, again, like I said, because, it's, because the causes of wakefulness change with pregnancy and per person, it's, it's hard to be specific. But napping during pregnancy is something we encourage for two reasons. One, because it enables you to nap much easier once the baby comes. If you've never napped in your life before and then suddenly you've got a 40-minute window to have a quick nap and three piles of washing to sort, there's a lot of pressure on your nap. <laughs> Whereas if you're well-practiced because you've been doing it during pregnancy, then that's much easier. So that's one reason we encourage a nap. And the other reason is obviously it just can make you feel better and your body's needing a lot of rest at that time. However, with naps, if you don't have other children, if this is your first pregnancy and you're sleeping for the most part at night, we also encourage it to be fairly short, under 30 minutes, so that you're not sort of chewing into your night of sleep um, and also not too late in the day. But napping's definitely a good option sometimes. And like I said, listen to your body, vary your bedtimes. If you're waking up to the birds at 5 o'clock in the morning and that's sort of a difficult time for you, you can go to bed earlier. You know, it, it doesn't have to be as it, as it always was necessarily. So just, um, just listening to your body and kind of 
realizing what it is that's keeping you awake and trying to target that cause, for example. So we'll move on now to the postpartum period. Sleep can become problematic here and for many reasons. What do you see in your clinic? Okay, so yeah, you're right. Sleep in the postpartum year is problematic for a lot of reasons. Uh, So it is a bit difficult for me to narrow it down. But um, I suppose in our clinic, we see a bit of everything. We see mums with babies that sleep really, really well, but mums awake with insomnia. And I think that's the most ironic one of all that gets very infuriating for the patients. Um, And also for their friends, they just really can't understand it. They're like, oh, but your baby's sleeping so well. I don't understand. You know, it's so fantastic. And mum's sort of sitting there going, well, actually not helping me. So we've got sort of that circumstance. Then we have uh, women whose babies wake frequently through the night. That's really quite difficult. Often that's linked with the mums whose babies have Q-dependent sleep onset, which is sort of like they're relying on feeding to sleep or rocking to sleep, and that kind of causes them to wake more frequently. Occasionally we have women who bring their baby in. Everything's kind of healthy and perfect and reasonable as far as development goes and everything, but mums just either got quite unrealistic expectations or she's sort of not coping with the lifestyle changes because she maybe didn't know what to expect previously or she's just not getting very much help um, or she's feeling lonely or isolated and obviously kind of paired with that can come postnatal depression. What about baby monitors and video cameras? They're a relatively new thing. Do they help or hinder sleep for the mother? Really good question, actually, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I think the simplest answer is it depends how they're used. They certainly can hinder sleep because they can make a parent quite hypervigilant. Babies are quite noisy sleepers, and that's something a lot of people really don't realize. So if you're sleeping um, and and you hear, you know, a squeak come from your baby or, or a you know, little, they sometimes will growl during active sleep. That can sort of make parents' eyes pop open um, and even race in. But in reality, it's really unnecessary. So they can make for very hypervigilant parents. Having said that, obviously, a lot of people have really lovely big houses now and maybe their bedroom's not close to their baby. Um, or maybe the baby's asleep and they're downstairs having dinner. So they serve a very good purpose, but I just think they need to be used as necessary, you know, on a low volume where you can hear your baby cry and need you, but you don't really hear the things that you need to hear. I might just add to that that a new baby is really best in its parents' room anyway, so hopefully you're not needing a monitor at night time in the earlier stages. Yeah, some excellent points there. Once upon a time, I was told by a very wise Karatani nurse when I had my first baby to tell visitors to stay away, to drop my standards and to sleep when the baby sleeps. Is this a useful strategy? Definitely, it's a useful strategy, but in moderation. I think it's important for people to sort of take all this advice, but in the perspective of it's not always realistic. A lot of people I hear complain they say oh the midwife said sleep when the baby sleeps but my baby sleeps for 40 minutes and I've got three piles of washing to do and my house is a pigsty and I really just want to sit and have a cup of coffee 
you know, so it's sort of like a great idea in theory, but it doesn't always work. So my first piece of advice with regard to sleeping when the baby sleeps is it actually is a time to prioritize you and your sleep. So don't worry about the washing. Don't worry about the other stuff at this point in your life for just a few weeks or months. I think that's kind of the first thing to say. And then just to take the pressure off falling asleep. I also say to people, instead of sleeping when the baby sleeps, lie down when the baby sleeps or relax when the baby sleeps. And if you sleep, fantastic. And if you don't, you've still benefited from lying down. So for me, I think it's important to take the pressure off the sleep, but at the same time, give yourself that opportunity. I'm sort of answering your question backwards, but I suppose that's the recency effect. (laughs) Um, You also asked if dropping your standards is a good idea, and I think that that is always a good idea. If you can't be anything but pleasantly surprised, I think that's a um, a great option. And coming to the idea of telling visitors to stay away, I really think that's a case-by-case basis sort of thing or or everything in moderation, I should say, because certainly if mum's at home on her own and feeling lonely and isolated, visitors are really important, particularly if they'll bring food or hold the baby so mum can have a shower and be helpful visitors. But we all sort of know, and I'm sure everyone's going to have people pop in their mind at this point, that um. Some visitors are more helpful than others. So just kind of know who's in your life that is helpful and who's less helpful and kind of schedule them according to your mood of the day or or how things are going at the time. Um, So, yeah, definitely be aware that um, this is a time in your life to prioritise your needs. And if, if, if you're not sort of performing at the same level socially as you always have, that's probably healthy. Excellent points there. So, Leora, what techniques have you found to be useful in this period? So, look, it is a difficult period of life and it's a very unpredictable period of life. So I think an open mind is probably one of, it's really going to be your best friend at this time. Also, like I said, prioritising yourself, being aware of your own mood changes and warning signs asking for help and talking. If you've got a partner, talk to your partner or your friend or your parents, you know, talking to them about the way you're feeling, particularly if you feel like it's borderline, you know, not normal or not a normal dose of of sadness, for example. I think it's important if you can to get dressed every day so that you feel a bit human. And I really encourage people to get outdoors once a day, even if it's on a balcony or in a garden, that exposure to sunshine does wonders for you and your mood and your sleep actually as well. Um, if you can go for a, a very a little walk, that's great. But even if, like I said, even if you just sit on the balcony or in the garden, that exposure to sunshine is quite important too. And like I said earlier, napping or resting are both really healthy as well. But mo- most importantly, I think what it comes down to is knowing yourself, taking time to get to know your baby and, and prioritising your health and your needs. You know, we sort of spend a lot of our lives waking up early to exercise before work or, you know, going out late to see friends and sacrificing your sleep in doing those things. And it's just really not the time of life for that, you know. It's, this is the time to kind of 
realize that slowing down is what's going to be helpful and important for you. So just kind of implementing that. And then you know what, you'll get to a point where you really want to go out and you want to do all these things and, and, and respond to that as well. But just, just be aware of what's going on for you. So when can a new mother or new parents expect to get a full night's sleep? And does sleep ever return to normal? That really depends on what you call normal. It also depends on what you call a full night of sleep. <laughs> There's a lot of variation um, in responding to that question. So, for example, a majority of newborns will need night feeds every sort of three to four hours or even two hours sometimes. And then once the baby gets um, older and their tummy holds more food, the night feeds become less frequent and their ability to sleep for longer periods is improved. So that's sort of your first kind of um, developmental change that enables that potential for longer sleeps. And you may or may not get that, but it's the first kind of tick off the list that that can happen. Um, about 50% of babies will sleep through from say 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. by the time they're six months old. But remember that that's 50%, which it leaves another 50% that's not doing that. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, you've got about 20% of babies who won't even have achieved sleeping from midnight to 5 a.m. or sleeping for eight hours or something by 12 months of age. So there's huge amounts of variability in what sleep patterns a baby will follow. And it's, you know, certainly during pregnancy, you've got no idea what that's going to be like. Sometimes your sleep or your partner's sleep is a good indication. But, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of just a matter of taking it as it comes, getting to know your baby and sort of make, making your babies and your sleep as best as you can and making sure that everyone's sort of managing Coming to your question of uh, does sleep ever return to normal, that sort of makes me laugh if I'm going to be honest because the fact of the matter is, and again, I guess I'm talking to people who are pregnant for the first time, um, you know, they, they may well be pregnant again a few months after their baby starts sleeping through the night and so then they're kind of back at square one <laughs> for the next one and a half years. Um, and if I sort of apply this to myself, I'm about to have number three and I'll have three under five. So I haven't slept normally for nearly five years. Well, at least for more than say a fortnight or a month in a row, you know, but I think as much as I don't like to be the bearer of bad news, I think that that doesn't mean even if you're not sleeping normally, that doesn't mean you're not getting enough sleep. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't feel good. It doesn't mean that you can't sort of adapt to the changes. So, you know, pre-pregnancy, your normal night might have been 11 p.m. till 7 a.m. You may or may not get that for a very long time, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get sufficient sleep ever again. I hope that uh, answers your question in a nicer, more gentle way. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> But, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but we've got to be realistic, right? Oh, absolutely. And a mum of three children, I hear you loud and clear. <laughs> um, so we are going to do a second podcast on maximising sleep for our new babies. So hopefully that will optimise sleep for our new mothers. 
and give them um, some hope. But thinking about lack of sleep and all this adjustment, I suppose anxiety, depression, perhaps suicide just springs into mind for me there. Tell us about your thoughts there. Yeah, look, it's really important to know that this part of your life is a, a vulnerable stage. It's a stage where things are very new. Even if you're a second, third, fourth time, fifth time mum, who knows, you know, it's still new adding a new person to your life. So it's any lifestyle change can certainly trigger those types of things. But in addition to that, you've obviously got changes in your hormones. Your body looks different. Your body feels different. There's a lot of stress involved. So it's important to know that particularly if you've had a history of anxiety or depression, this is a time in your life where you might be at risk again. I will say that the early childhood centers and midwives that visit new mothers are really quite aware of all of this stuff. And they'll often give a little questionnaire to assess for PND um, as well. So we are definitely getting better at picking up on all these things, particularly depression, anxiety, is much harder to pick up on. Psychosis is fairly rare and suicidal ideation. It, again, it's, it, it is quite difficult to pick up on, particularly if the person's not sharing. So I think if you're the one that's expecting or you're the one with the new baby, the most important thing to do is reach out if you think that the way you're feeling is not sort of a healthy level. Because some, some sort of changes in mood are, are expected. Um, but if you think that what you're feeling is not sort of reasonable or if you're feeling disconnected from your baby and you're not sort of experiencing the, any joy at any time, if you're crying a lot or feeling down, and this is sort of beyond your sort of baby blues first 10 days, two weeks type period. Um, you also might see changes in your appetite or, or sleeping habits aside from what's expected. Make sure that you talk to somebody. It doesn't matter if you start with a partner or a friend or a parent or a GP or a midwife. It really doesn't matter. You just need to start the conversation because it is fairly well managed um, and it can worsen if it's not picked up on. So really taking that first step is in many ways the most important step. But then if you're not the one expecting and you've got a friend or a partner or a child who's expecting, you know, it's also your responsibility, if possible, to be aware of those signs as well and, and changes in your partner or changes in your child or sister or whoever it might be um, that you think are beyond sort of a healthy level. Make sure that you start that conversation if they don't, you know. Like I said, getting, getting help, there's a lot that we can do. Um, for people who are having a hard time, but not if we don't know. So awareness is probably really the best answer. Fantastic. Some excellent points here. Thank you. And to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Take-home messages. Okay, so let's try and summarize this because let's face it, pregnancy and parenting are new and not necessarily easy. But probably the most important thing is to commit to prioritizing you and your mental health at this stage of your life. Sleep is a large part of that. So, you know, like I said, socializing, tidying your house and exercising, 
they can probably wait a little bit longer. They're always, the, the messy house is still going to be there when you wake up. So just prioritize you and your mental health. That's definitely take home number one. If you are still pregnant and you can practice napping, I think that's a really important thing to try and do. Just give yourself that opportunity when you don't have the external pressure of a baby waking at an unpredictable time. Um, and, and like I said, even if you don't fall asleep, just lie down and kind of enjoy that rest period. Number three, I would say, is to know yourself and be aware of any signs and symptoms that you're not coping as well as you were hoping to. Like I said, definitely some level of finding this difficult and some level of changes in mood are healthy, but there's a big difference between, you know, those, those fluctuations in mood that are healthy and the ones that aren't. And I guess the take home message that follows very simply on from that is to talk to someone if you need it. And even, even if it's not, you know, postnatal depression, or even if it's not sort of unreasonable, if things aren't working, don't sort of stay stuck in the, in, in the world of not working, try something new, try something different. And if that doesn't work either, try again. You know, babies are very adaptable. All they really need is you. So try and make it work for all of you, your whole house. And um, if things aren't working, like I said, talk to someone, have a new idea and try something different. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, If you're a New Zealand primary care doctor and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the reflection of learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.